0: in God's Word to Job, chapter 2, picking up where we left off a few weeks ago in verse 11 and reading through chapter 3. Kids, you look in your Bible, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job. There's also an outline on page 4 in the bulletin. Hear now God's Word. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, "'Let the day perish on which I was born, "'and the night that said, A man is conceived. "'Let that day be darkness. "'May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. "'Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. "'Let clouds dwell upon it. "'Let the blackness of the day terrify it. "'That night, let thick darkness seize it. "'Let it not rejoice among the days of the year.' Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants, Who never see the light. There the wicked cease from troubling. And there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there. And the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery? And life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it comes not? And dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sign comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. His herds have been plundered or killed. All of his workers have been taken captive or killed. His seven sons and three daughters are dead. Job is bereaved, humiliated, He's in pain. Open sores are all over his body. His skin is festering. His nerves are on fire. He's on an ash heap of sorrow. If he were an atheist, he would have an explanation for this. The world is a cruel place. If he were a polytheist or a fatalist, he would say, Well, human weakness, the forces of nature. But Job believes in the living triune God. Job was a real man. This is real history. He knows his God is supremely good. He knows these things have only happened because the good and almighty God has ordained these horrible sufferings and afflictions and pain and death to come to pass. And instead of cursing God as Satan said he would, Job worshiped. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Loved ones, all of us who love the Lord desire to respond to trials in this way, don't we? As Derek Thomas says, this could be a prayer that we pray to the Lord often. Maybe it is something you pray often. Lord, when difficulty comes this day, this week, whatever it is, help me to say what Job said. Help me to worship as Job worshiped. The suffering continues. And we see in these portions of Job, the darkness descends. This is not a happy chapter. This is the darkest chapter in the Bible, along with Psalm 88 and a portion of the New Testament that we'll look at. Maybe you're here right now. Maybe you've been here. Maybe you will be here. Maybe you know someone who's here. Why suffering and why death? Or as Job 3.20 says, why life? First, we see that Job is visited in his suffering. Job is a leading figure. He was known all throughout the ancient world, and he has friends. In particular, friends that come from other countries, perhaps, that are well-known. And these friends love Job. They are sincerely coming to comfort him. They want to be there to help him. Zophar comes from Nemaah. Namah was a female descendant of Cain. Namah was also the name of a princess, who's an Ammonite, that Solomon married. So that's giving you some idea of perhaps generally where she's from. Bildad from Shua. Shua was one of Abraham's sons by his wife Keturah. So again, outside the promised land, east. Eliphaz from Teman. This is an Edomite town. One of Esau's sons was named Eliphaz. We're not sure exactly where these friends come from, but they're real friends. They come from outside the promise line. That's the picture. Outside Israel. Outside of the line of Abraham in some way. Although there are some connections. We don't know how long it took for them to get there. Maybe months. Job himself says he's had months of emptiness in chapter 7. And they want to provide real comfort. They want to speak in such a way that will help Job, that won't make things worse. And that's what comfort is, isn't it? It's like Joseph, who comforted his brothers. He reduced their fearfulness, Genesis 50, because his words lowered the level of their fear. Speaking to the heart, speaking to the mind, speaking to the situation the person is in with the comfort that we have in Jesus that's a key to real friendship, isn't it? Sometimes we struggle, all of us, with friendships. We've been burned, perhaps. Or we are gun shy to kind of invest in someone. Or we, we kind of have our little group of friends here and we we fail to sometimes see how lonely each other is. And friendship is investing in other people with steadfast love, not to inflate ourselves but to pour into them in a loyal, steadfast way like Bilbo and Frodo and Samwise and the Lord of the Rings, the fellowship. That's what it looks like. Times of difficulty and stress and joy and happiness. As the Proverbs say, it's not wise to have too many close friends. Actually, it's impossible. Jesus had 12 disciples, but an inner core of three. Peter, James, and John. One theologian says to have three or four close friends like Proverbs, loyal, steadfast, is probably a manageable, realistic thing. That's an important part of this as well. But many people don't have any friends. And as you look around you, they're here. We are here. These are your brothers and sisters. And we pray friendships will be forged among us. We don't want you to come to church thinking, I just... I'm on my own. I'm on an island. The elders and deacons and I are responsible to shepherd you all but all of you as the body of Christ are in this together with us. This is an important part of church life that we want and pray for genuine gospel rooted friendships to happen. It's not going to happen just on the basis of interests and likes and hobbies. It's something God by his spirit produces where God's church has friendships that someone outside would look at and say, how did that happen? That's not what the world looks like. Well, that's what we pray will happen among us. As they catch a glimpse of their friend, they're appalled. This greatest of the men of the East is almost unrecognizable. Christopher Ash has many helpful comments on this passage. He says maybe you've experienced this going to a hospital, seeing a friend, a loved one, and you look at them and they're not physically the same person anymore. They inhabit a realm that's strange as well to us. So this is a painful thing for Job because no longer is there that embrace, no longer that joyful family fellowship meal, no longer the handshake. He is so deeply suffering They also don't acknowledge him. That's what verse 12 is saying when it says recognize, meaning they're thinking, in a way, this could not have happened to Job. We know that from the rest of the book. Chapters 3 to 31, they are poetry. They have speeches from Job and Bildad and Eliphaz and Zophar, and these friends who mean well are about to say awful things. They're about to make Job's suffering much worse. And because they're such good friends, that's what makes it so hurtful. If they weren't, it might not be as bad. But it is. Satan is behind it. Job is being battered. They raise their voices, verse 12. They weep. This is not just tears. This is loud weeping. Not with Job, but they're weeping at Job. They're sprinkling dust, and they're throwing it up above their heads. Kids, kind of like if you have leaves in the fall and you toss them in the air and they fall on your head. It's showing solidarity. They're grieving Job's friends, uh, Job's children who have died, and they're silent before him. Notice that? They're showing solidarity in their silence at first. Moms and dads, especially fathers like me, sometimes... Our kids are struggling. We think we just need to fix it. We think that bringing down the law will help. It doesn't. We know that. Not in a harsh way. We need law and gospel, all of us, yes. Our kids need just us to, to cry with them, to hold them, to pray with them. When they're shaking, when they're angry, they need to hear the grace of Jesus like we do. We need grace. We ought not think that they don't need grace. We ought not be harsh with them when God has been so patient with us. And yet we sometimes just want to fix stuff. There's a point of silence together that is deeply encouraging, but not this long. See, there's a seven-day period here. They spoke not a word. They're symbolizing here that he's dead. They're treating him as if here is the coffin, Job, You're about to hop in it. The hearse is coming and Job is looking at his own funeral in their eyes. By not saying anything, they're bringing home the loneliness even more of what he's experiencing. And this is what suffering can do, as many of you know. Suffering isolates people. Even if you're sick with Sore, a sore throat and strep throat. And you can't go to that friend's party, kids. And you can't join your friend down the street who's playing baseball or drawing a picture and they want you to come or a church picnic or, right? Suffering even cuts us out of those things. We miss them. We long for them. But here, here they are saying, Job, there's no hope for you. And Job in chapter 3 is about to say the same thing. Second, Job is cursing and calling out for darkness. It's interesting because in Job 3, he's not speaking to his friends. He's not even really speaking to God. He's speaking with himself. It's a psalm, in a sense. He's singing this. It's lament, but it's further than lament. It's actually curse. He curses the day of his birth, verse 1. He wishes he had never been born, He connects the eyelids of the dawn, verse 9, with the doors of his mother's womb. This is poetry. This is challenging, isn't it? He's saying, if the dawn and my mother's womb had remained closed, then I never would have opened my eyes to see this world of trouble. He's wishing a terrible thing. Because how many childless couples among us, among our friends, among our loved ones, have prayed and longed for the day when a baby would be born. Job even goes further than this. He's saying, I wish I had never even been conceived. He is saying it's all just meaningless nihilism. He wants creation literally unwound. He wants God, who spoke light, and there was light, to reverse it. Everything become dark. My deepest friend is darkness. Hello, darkness, my old friend. You think of Simon and Garfunkel, the sound of silence. Is that where they got it from? He says, I want chaos and death to replace order and life. Life is so painful. I wish I never existed at all. Deep darkness, the darkness that descended upon Egypt and the plagues, the darkness of death itself, Kids, the darkness, if you go to a cave, we went there on our summer trip in Kentucky, and you look down, and it is so thick. They turn lights on for us, but you turn the light off. This is dark. Where is the bottom of this cave? Verse 8, he calls upon, as Christopher Ashe says, magicians to blot out the day of his birth as they seek to control monsters. This is very interesting. Leviathan, he'll bring him up later on. Here's what he's saying. I wish I was never born. The only way that could be is that the day of my birth is removed from the calendar. As long as this day comes every year, I'm still here. But if it's removed, then I don't exist. The only way to remove it is for some sort of a Leviathan creature to be called on by curse bringers who can ask him to destroy the day. This is how bad things are here. It's like the Lord of the Rings, again. The Fellowship of the Ring is passing through the mines of Moria. One of the hobbits, remember, accidentally stirs up Balrog and the consequences were dreadful. Job is wishing for something evil like that. Is he pagan? No, he denies practicing these things. Is he actually wishing for it? Well, it's poetry, so in some sense, yes. It's rhetorical as well. And Satan is at work in his mind. What he's going through is the deep, dark night of the soul. What he's going through is something Christians go through. Something maybe you are in or have been in. Something Paul himself talks about. Something Jeremiah quotes. Jeremiah quotes from Job in chapter 20 of Jeremiah. His own dark night. Moses went through these things. Elijah, Jonah, the Psalms all over the place. Lament, how long, O Lord? Your waves are breaking over me. My tears have been my food. That's what I'm eating. My tears day and night. I can't sleep. I'm crying out. This is something Christians experience. It's a false piety that says Christians never get discouraged or depressed. It's not true that Christians are always upbeat and smiling. That's not the Bible. Sometimes the future looks blank. The past is filled with regret. Sometimes afflictions are such that you lose the sense of God's favor and presence. You lose the assurance of salvation, but you don't lose God. He doesn't lose you, but it feels that way. And what has happened here? Well, as Derek Thomas says, one thing has happened that you all know very well the passage of time. Job was worshiping God in chapter one. Now, it's a cursed lament. When you suffer afflictions that continue not for a day, but weeks and months and years and decades. And you lose sleep and your body is racked and your emotions are turned up and you're being chipped away at, you might cry out like Job does, How long, O oh God? He says five times, beginning in verse 11 through the end of the chapter, Why? 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 This is the inward struggle he has. Why, five years ago, did a family of five that some of you knew that was going to be missionaries in Japan die in a car crash? Why, when the drunk driver hit that other person, did the family die and that person walked away? Why does the young man have cancer? Why do the nations rage... this is the way life is in the fallen world. This is life between the first and second comings of Jesus. And through it all, God's purposes are coming to pass, even as they are hidden from us. His why is a lament. He says in verse 11, why did I have to be born and stay alive? So now he's saying, why didn't I just die after birth? Before, why didn't I die before I was born? Now, after birth. And in verse 13 all all the way through 19, just negative. Do you see this? We can sometimes get into this loop of thinking. Negative about everything. Someone says something encouraging to us. Do you remember Eeyore? Have a nice day. If it is a nice day, which I doubt. We can fall into that easily. Everything Job says as he wishes for death is a bad thing. Now, what he wants, interestingly, do you see throughout the chapter, what is he after? Rest. There's hope here. But the way he says these things, look at verse 14 and 15. The kings, the counselors, the princes, the builders, those four, those influential people, the wicked, the overworked, the criminals, the oppressed, those on the other hand, he's saying all of them, when they die, are going to the same place. The baby who dies in the womb, the CEO who made billions of dollars, death is the great equalizer. No matter how much you've ach- achieved or how little, when you die, you're in the same place. When I die, he's saying, there's not going to be any stares from the self-righteous. Maybe you've thought that. That could be part of the struggle sometimes we have with friendships. Friendships. Someone is so self-righteous, opinionated, and harsh. And we feel just so undone around them. And it's hard to love them. It's hard to love all of us, right? We need God's grace, every one of us. In the grave, no more sores, no more itching, no more sleepless nights. Now, as Job is saying this, he's not seeking to take his own life. But he's asking God to take his life kill me and get it over with. That's what he's saying. Dear loved one, your life matters. If you need help, talk to someone. If you're suicidal, talk to someone. Reach out. We're here to help you. People love you. God loves you. Job goes on, verse 20. He wishes he was just dead now. He's bitter in soul. He's saying in verse 21, I desire death, this is quite a picture, the same way a grave robber desires going to the cemetery. Because in those days, the graves would often be filled with riches and money and treasures and grave robbers would go and the person that's buried, they'd dig them up and take out the riches. They're so excited to get there, it's so evil, it's perverse. That's the way he's desiring death. God has become my enemy, verse 23. God has hedged me in. An ironic twist on words. Satan had said, back in chapter 1, verse 11, God had put a hedge of protection around Job. That's why Job praises you, God. He doesn't really love you. He just loves the stuff you've given him. He loves his life. He loves his influence. He loves the blessings of this world, but he doesn't love you. Take it away, God. He'll curse you. That's what Satan said. Now Job says, God has hedged me in, kind of like barbed wire kids around his life. He can't get out. He's imprisoned. He wants to just die. There's no key. There's no escape. That's what he's saying. And some of you, perhaps, are going through that. In particular, loved ones, you think of those who are elderly who once were so active, traveling, and working, and serving, and then they're not able to drive, and then they're not able to walk, and then they're not able to leave their home or the nursing home, and then they're not able to leave their bed, and everything is narrowing down, and they're crying out, how long, oh God? That's Job right now. If God gives good gifts and death would end my suffering, why doesn't he give the good gift of death to end my suffering? That's what he's saying here. And the answer to that, young and old, is that you will live not one second longer or shorter than God ordains. And if you're here and you're alive, God has a purpose for you. Your life is valuable. You may be in a wheelchair or a nursing home, but you can pray And the prayers of God's people, oh, the Lord loves to hear his people pray. You can love your grandchildren and love those around you and be an encouragement as you suffer by faith. Others are watching you. You're an example of what it means to suffer by faith in Jesus. The depths of the anguish, verse 24. He's sighing. He's groaning. This is like an animal at the zoo, we were there this week and one of those gorillas just made noise. I'd never heard it. He starts to pound his chest and he, he yelled. It was loud. Or maybe kids, you've heard a lion at the zoo. Roar. This is not a small thing. His groaning. It's similar to Psalm 22. My heart is like wax. My tongue sticks to my jaws. I'm in the dust of death. My nightmares have become a reality. In verse 25 and 26, he's saying, everything I feared has happened, and you might be there. You might think, the things I feared the most, they're here, it's worse than I feared. He says, I can't relax, I can't settle, I can't rest, I'm agitated, I can't sleep at night, I can't stay awake and be alert during the day, I'm fatigued. Trouble, see that? restless trouble. And like Psalm 88, Job 3 ends with no happy ending. The Bible is real. It's not make-believe. It's not Disney. It's not the princess marries the prince or the Cinderella marries the prince. or No, no, no. Not in this life. Yes, our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in the Lord. But right now he's saying, God, why have you forgotten me? And one thing we learn here is that it's okay to ask God questions like this. It's a false piety that says, I can't talk this way. Yes, he says things he shouldn't have said. Yes, does he sin in some of what he says? Of course he does. But does God pound him? Does God come after him? No. God is silent at this point in this part of Job, interestingly, isn't he? God speaks later on, but you're wondering, God, say something. God is patient with his servant. And like Johnny Erickson Tata says, it's okay to ask these questions. Do you remember her? You know her? She grew up in a family that was very athletic. Her dad was actually an alternate as a wrestler on the Olympics in 1932. Did you see our local Apple Valley wrestler? The way he won gold this week, the takedown, last second, incredible. There's stuff like that in the Olympics. Where did that come from? Well, her dad was a wrestler, I digress. She grew up in a very active family, And at age 16, in 1967, she dove in the Chesapeake Bay. She had misjudged the shallowness of the water. She was paralyzed from that point on. She experienced anger and depression, suicidal thoughts, doubts. And she says, Job comforted me because I realized I can ask these questions. God doesn't condemn me in these questions God knows our weakness. He understands our frustrations. Did I find answers, she said, for the darkest, deepest questions of a 16-year-old who is paralyzed? She says, I did find one. Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond Tracing out. Third, what are some applications for us, dear loved ones? Do you see what Job does not say? Satan said, Job will curse you, God. Job curses the day of his birth, but he does not curse God. He calls into question God's sovereign decree, but he does not Deny the sovereignty of God. Ephesians 1, that all things are working together according to God's purpose, that everything that happens, he is sovereign in and over and through. But what about us and our suffering? What about our mental anguish, our loneliness? Friends who have gone away, that's a suffering. The death of a spouse, an undiagnosed illness, a dark cloud, whatever it might be. Job has lost the joy of life. And pain can cause us sometimes to lose perspective. In our pain, we can make exaggerated comments we know that we shouldn't say. Everything can be negative. As we suffer, we can be self-obsessed. We can just Google nonstop whatever we're dealing with, and think that if I find the answer, then I'll be fine. And if I get this thing fixed, everything will be fine. And we can we can feel sorry for ourselves. I've done that before. We can turn in on ourselves and obsess and lay awake at night, thinking and wondering what if and why had why did I not do that and what about my future and what do we lose then, what are we not seeing then? We're not seeing God. Isaiah 41, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, the Lord says, I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my omnipotent, sovereign, righteous hand. That's what I'm missing when I'm obsessing. I'm also missing this. In our suffering, we may wander off, but God is. Never lets you go. God loves you. You may say, I have nothing at all to hold on to God by, and God says, You know what? I'm holding on to you. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. C.S. Lewis, a month after his wife died, was cynical. What's the point of life, he said? I know the Bible says we will suffer, but it's one thing to think about other suffering. That's true, isn't it? It's one thing to think about that person. It's one thing to imagine it. But when I'm going through it, he says, I didn't deny God at all. The danger was I began to believe such dreadful things about him. Lewis says, what do people mean when they say I'm not afraid of God? because he is good. Have they not even been to a dentist? It doesn't matter whether you grip the arm of the dentist chair or let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills. Even in God's felt absence, he is there. How do we relate to this? Lament. The psalms of lament are there for you, dear loved ones. In your pain, this is the language of sorrow and of grief and of crying out to God. This is the language we sing together. As we are in brokenness and in a fallen world and things are not right, this is the path of sorrow that leads to praise, not superficially, not in a trite way, but in a, God, do what is right. God, help me trust you. God, things are not good. I'm disappointed, the hope in a psalm of lament is not the end of our earthly suffering by itself. Meaning it's not just that this this thing will be better and then things are fine. Just fix this thing, no, the hope is God himself. God is our portion. We mourn with hope because of the gospel. As we suffer, this is a part of our relationship with God. David Strain says this. It's not a distraction. It's part of it. Our Father is at work in us to develop in us the family likeness, to conform us to the image of Jesus, the man of sorrows. God is making you look like Jesus as you suffer. We read that in Philippians today. Paul suffered the loss of all things. They're rubbish compared to what? Knowing Christ. Sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. You might feel totally depressed. You might feel totally forsaken by God. But you are never loved ones so much in God's eye as when you are least in your own nor have we ever so much of God as when we expect little or least from man. What does this mean with emotions? One of the things Job's agony says is it's okay. It's Christian to be emotional. One of the things we learn here is that God does not make us Stoics. We're not to just grin and bear it. What are the two ditches? I have a book quoted there. Groves and Smith wrote a great book, Untangling Emotions. What do they say the ditches are? Well, you are what you feel. Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. If I feel it to be true, then it's true. That's one ditch. The other ditch is apathy, fatalism, indifference, and a lack of love. These writers say emotions reflect what we love, and what we love supremely, we worship. Our emotions have been disordered by the fall, but our heart is pouring out streams of emotions for our cares. Kids, do you remember Inside Out? Do you remember the girl, Riley? She's moving from Minnesota to San Francisco. And she's very sad and she's upset and the pizza just has broccoli on it and this is not a place she wants to live. And she goes to school and she's excited about a memory, but then sadness comes and that memory becomes a sad memory and there's something profound there. We may feel many things at the same time. Mixed emotions can be the right response to a world that's both full of grace and depravity. All emotions are good in their proper place. We should not feel happy when a loved one's in pain. We should feel fear when a car almost hits our five-year-old. Emotions don't come in single file. They come all at once at times. And here's the comfort. We have a high priest who also experienced all of these emotions, yet without sin. As you have your emotions, that's a part of bearing God's image. We engage them. We empathetically want to help others here. This is a big part of friendship. Empathy says, I want to know what this situation was like for you rather than just imagining what your situation would be like for me. Emotional connection is important for intimacy with God and others. Some of you have been burned by churches. It may take time for you to trust. We're patient. We're sinful. We're weak. We're not perfect. But an encouragement is seek out someone today to talk to that's not in your circle of friends. You're loved by God. You have the love of Christ. You have what you need to love someone by the Spirit to bear each other's burdens, and to seek someone out to encourage. Not to seek someone out to give your opinion or preference, but to empathetically, lovingly listen and encourage. Our emotions are never meant to be engaged outside of God's presence. God says to you, like in Job, bring your disordered, complex, overwhelming emotions to him. The Psalms help us there as we look at a God who has chosen to bear scars himself. Jesus, the suffering servant, is a God we can trust with our wounds. Our joys now are a mere foretaste. Our tears are a precious prelude to complete comfort because that's where Job 3 leads. It leads to a darker place even than Job 3, to the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears, his soul was sorrowful to the point of death. His friends abandoned him. He was alone. Even his mother wasn't near him on the cross. And like Job, Jesus cried out the haunting question, Why? From the sixth hour to the ninth, darkness came over the land. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With a loud voice. Because Jesus asked why, we may also ask why. The one who hears our prayers is the suffering servant who is tempted and tested as we are without sin the suffering and agony of the cross comes before the empty tomb. That's the pattern of redemptive history. So while we ask why, we need to be willing to accept the answer. Suffering comes before glory. While we're in agony and depressed, we cry out to this Savior who was raised from the dead. And all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus So as we ask why, we can be sure that somehow, in some way, God will turn this suffering for good. So it's not just why suffering and darkness. It's why life. Why is life given? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The reason for life is that we might enjoy the privilege of being in the presence of God and seeing his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us not to lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.